You are listening to Killer, and this is case number 23, Ellen Greenberg. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. It was January 26, 2011, and the weather in Philadelphia was turning nasty. A blizzard was on the way. The 27-year-old teacher, Ellen Greenberg, dismissed her first-grade students early to avoid the impending weather, and she headed home to her apartment as well. Along the way, the first-grade teacher stopped and filled up her car with gas, and then she made her way home, where her fiancé, Sam Goldberg, awaited her at their Venice loft apartment. Sam and Ella were in the apartment together until about 4.45 p.m., Sam left the sixth-floor apartment and went to work out at the nearby gym in their apartment complex. Sam returned home later, and when he arrived, he noticed the door was locked from the interior. He opened it partway with his key, but the interior swing lock was also in place too. He could not get into his apartment and immediately began texting Ellen and banging on the door, but neither option resulted in a response. Sam remained outside of the apartment door for roughly 22 minutes as he sent texts such as, Hello? Open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello? You better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ah! And you have no idea. Frustrated, Goldberg went to the lobby of their apartment complex and spoke with Phil Hanton. He was the only security guard on duty that evening. He begged Hanton to break the lock to his apartment, but Hanton refused. It was against their policy. Sam did the only thing he could think of, break the door himself in the presence of the security guard. The presence of the security guard has been questioned, and Hanton claims he was not present during the break-in. However, it is in the official police report that he was there. At this point, it had been roughly one hour since Sam returned to the apartment, which was locked from the inside. Sam discovered his fiancée with several stab wounds, so he called 911. It was 6.33 p.m. The operator instructed him to begin CPR, but when they discovered there was still a knife lodged in her chest, he was instructed to stop. Ellen was pronounced dead at the scene at 6.40 p.m. Interestingly, Sam leaves for the gym, comes back, can't get in, Spends all this time banging on the door, sending texts, calling. He just, for whatever reason, cannot get into the apartment. Well, the reason is it's locked, but nobody's coming to answer the door, and he's freaking out. Just, It's overall strange. Like, What would you feel like if you were the fiancé and you had left and you knew that your significant other was still in the apartment, and suddenly you show up and you can't get in? I would assume she's like cheating on me or something. Well, yeah, I would have assumed someone else was in the apartment for sure, especially since the swing lock was locked as well from the inside and he had to break it down to get in i would assume that there would have been somebody else in the apartment at that point yeah i mean you would think that's like the logical explanation is somebody else is in the apartment with her or she fell asleep but you know he left and obviously he couldn't lock that latch you know on his way out because it's an interior lock and for those unfamiliar it's a swing latch is one of those latches that you know you've seen them in hotels where they're like a metal latch and they're bolted to the side of the frame of the door and then they swing over and like grab onto something on the door, almost like um, like a chain lock. But these ones are like hard metal and they just flip over and they usually attach to like a, usually like a circular round piece on the other side. And it's like an additional lock, you know, in conjunction with your deadbolt and your regular door lock. Yeah, and in most cases you can only open them 
so far. The one they call them a slide lock because you can slide the door open maybe just a couple inches. So obviously you can't see very far into the room even if that slide lock is fully over and you have that little bit of a gap to look through. So really obviously he wasn't able to see in the apartment far enough to see what was going on at the time without having to break the door down. According to the police report, the decedent is on the hardwood kitchen floor, located just inside the door entrance. The decedent is found supine with her head and some of her upper body and shoulders resting against the lower half of the white kitchen cabinets next to the range. Her body, starting with the head, is faced north and the legs west. She is clad in a zipper-up dark-colored overtop, a t-shirt, gray sweatpants, underwear, and light brown Ugg boots. A pair of eyeglasses are on the floor to the right of the decedent. A white towel is grasped in her left hand. A hair tie or scrunchie is on her right wrist. There are no personal effects on the body. The report continues, Upon further examination of the body, the decedent has a knife embedded in her left chest through her clothing. There are multiple stab wounds examined at the scene. At the chest where the knife is located, a few superficial groups nearby, one to the left upper chest near the clavicle, two more at the mid-chest between and just below the breast. There are defects to the shirt consistent with underlying wounds. There are no defense injuries to the hands, wrists, or forearms. The right hand is flaccid. The hands appear to be slightly stiff. The body is cool to the touch at the extremities and warm to the touch at the torso, front, and back. Lividity is inconspicuous. Findings are consistent with current position of the body. The report also noted blood is present on the head, in the hair and neck. The right hand has blood on it. On the front side of her shirt, along her pants, on the front side and top of both of her boots is blood. The right boot has blood on the sole. The blood around her is generally confined to the area of the body, on the floor underneath, and on the face of the cabinets behind her. One small blood spatter is on the cabinet to the left of the body. Two separate drops of blood spatter are on the granite countertop above her. In describing the scene around her body, the report states, Two kitchen knives are in the sink adjacent to the body. They are free of any blood or tissue. The sink underneath is dry and also bears no evidence of blood or tissue. A knife block is on the counter between the sink and the range. It is turned over to the side. The three utensils are a spatula, fork, and paring knife, all that bear no evidence of blood or tissue. The knife in her body is consistent with the knife set found in the sink and in the block. She was stabbed 20 times, including 10 to the back of her neck. This is where things get very, very interesting. Ellen was stabbed... 20 times, 10 times to the back of her neck and on the back of her head. And it's just an overall strange place to be stabbed. It's just a strange scene. You know, if you're Sam walking in and you're in this apartment complex, you come back after 30, 45 minutes, you know, at the gym, can't get into your home. You finally get in and there she is with all these stab wounds and nothing else. Yeah, and my upon observation of what we described there, you see her still with the knife in her chest. And and all these other stab wounds, you know, on her chest or on the back of her neck or whatever. Maybe not, but maybe the first thought I would have had was, you know, somebody took off right in the middle of this because her torso and stuff is still warm. Are they still in the apartment somewhere hiding? Right. Like, what's going on here? Is there somebody else I need to be concerned about? He started to perform CPR and then found the knife still stuck in her chest and was instructed to stop. You know, the police show up pretty quickly after, but it's just a very strange scene and a very strange set of circumstances unfolding, you know, within the course of, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Well, when you factor in the time it took him to get back into the apartment, it's a lot longer than that, but, you know, it's... I think it was like 90 minutes or so. Yeah, and and obviously she had 
from the time that she had had passed away from the wounds it hadn't been that long of a time her extremities were cold to the touch but her torso was still warm so i don't know the exact math on how time of death is calculated but it doesn't sound like she had been deceased very long before they had found her in that position yeah exactly so we're going to move on to some of the post-incident events that happen including the investigation and interviews and the like Following the discovery of Ellen's body, police began searching for evidence and conducting interviews. A brief canvas was done of the apartment hallway, speaking to a few neighbors. None of them reported any odd sounds, loud noises, or arguments. The apartment was reported to have been clean. No evidence of a struggle was found. Furniture was in its correct place. No valuables appeared to have been missing or disturbed. There were many items of value present in the area, including three laptops, money, car keys, etc., As police searched the apartment, they never found anything indicative of a suicide. No note or other information, either physical or digital, that would suggest Ellen committed suicide. The other peculiar thing police noted is that the apartment only has two ways you could gain entrance, through the main door or the patio sliding door. However, the patio is on the sixth floor, and there was a lot of snow that day. No tracks or disturbances were found on the balcony. Police did recover prescription medications Ellen had in her bedroom. There were a series of prescriptions that belonged to the benzodiazepine family. Ellen had been recently prescribed these medications in order to help control an issue she was having with anxiety. According to Ellen's mother, she had been suffering from anxiety since the end of the prior year, which would have been 2010 in this case. In an interview with police, Ellen's mother informed them that they recommended she go seek psychiatric help from a professional to help deal with her anxiety, which ultimately led to the prescriptions that she had. Alongside those prescriptions, police found a journal documenting her use of the drugs and mood while taking them. The last entry in the journal was dated January 16th. Ellen's mother also reported that she spoke to Ellen earlier that morning around 7 a.m. while they were both on their way to work. They had a pleasant conversation and had no indication that anything was wrong. Investigators spoke to Ellen Greenberg's psychiatrist named Ellen Berman. Berman stated that Greenberg was a newer patient of hers, having seen her only three times, on January 12th, January 17th, and January 19th of 2011. Berman described her as having severe anxiety for about two months. She was struggling with some new regulations that the school district changed as well as issues with some difficult students. She wasn't sure whether to quit or work through it. Some other interesting pieces of information Berman provided were that there did not appear to be any suicidal thoughts and Greenberg spoke very highly of her fiancé. Berman also noted she directly asked about any physical or verbal abuse in their relationship, which Greenberg denied. Greenberg was initially given Zoloft, then switched to low-dose Xanax after both failed. She was finally prescribed Ambien and Klonopin in order to help her get some sleep. There was never any indication of abusive behavior. Also of note, during Sandra and Joshua Greenberg's interview, the parents, they also stated in regards to Sam Goldberg that her and her family were happy to have him as a future in-law. The pair had been together for around three years and became engaged over the summer and were due to marry on August 11, 2011. They had no knowledge of any verbal or physical abuse. So the immediate question that comes to mind here after reading all of this, is did these drugs have something to do with Ellen's death? Because as of right now, there's not a whole lot of other physical evidence aside from the stab wounds and the knife. What do you think? I'm sure there are side effects to those drugs that state that you could have suicidal thoughts, but just thinking about the extent of her injuries, even if you're on a very high dosage of that medication, do you think you could stab yourself in the back of the neck 10 times before plunging a knife into your chest? It's a great question. It's one that people are still wrestling with. Yeah, I I can't see how 
still it's it's a suicide. I mean, I guess it could be, but just the pain of stabbing yourself is something. I mean, if it's a one or two and done, okay, sure, but 20 stab wounds before a fatal blow is stricken, I, I just, I question it highly. I'm in the same boat as you. So that being said, let's move on and check out what happened next. Ellen's parents have described her as happy, bubbly, and competitive. Ellen graduated from Penn State as a communications major, but eventually decided to pursue teaching. Shortly after graduating from Temple University, she got her job working at the Juniata Park Academy in the Philadelphia school system. According to her father, she felt good about what she was doing. Then something changed. Ellen's father, Josh, described her as suddenly becoming very anxious and wanting to return home. It would be three years since she hired into her job and was preparing for a wedding to her fiancé, Sam, but she wanted to return home still. Her parents couldn't understand. They recommended that she see a psychiatrist before giving up and returning home. It seemed totally out of character for Ellen, according to her parents. In the aftermath of Ellen's death, her parents answered a call. Something terrible has happened to Ellie, the call said. Then they were told something about their daughter committing suicide. Sandy refused to believe her daughter would take her own life. Two days later, the police then said they were investigating Ellen's death as a homicide. The news came moments before Josh delivered the eulogy at Ellen's funeral, where he would share the news. What is now a giant whirlwind of emotions and confusion quickly became more confusing and more emotional. I want to revisit the timeline for just a moment to ensure that everyone is on the same page. On January 26, 2011, Ellen was found dead in her apartment from 20 stab wounds, including 10 to the back of the neck. Initially ruled a suicide, within a couple of days it was changed to a homicide following the autopsy on March 7th. But three weeks later, the police changed it back to a suicide. The medical examiner agreed and changed his ruling to a suicide. The case would end here, case closed, as a suicide? Not so fast. The Greenbergs became frustrated, as they felt this should have been investigated as a homicide. They started to question everything about this investigation. They still weren't clear how she would have committed the stab wounds to the back of her neck. There were new signs of her being suicidal. What were they missing? Why would the police be the ones suggesting suicide and pushing the medical examiner to change his ruling? Over the last nine years, the Greenbergs have been fighting various battles to determine what really happened to Ellie. During the course of this, they had contracted an expert to create renderings of what her stab wounds would have looked like. They deemed that one of the wounds to the back of her neck would have rendered her paralyzed and unable to continue stabbing herself further. However, something interesting was noted in Ellen's autopsy report after its last revision. The medical examiner, Dr. Marlon Osborne, noted that Dr. Lucy Rourke examined Ellen's spinal cord and determined there was no defect to it, meaning Ellen could have possibly created the wounds in her back and continued on stabbing herself in the front. But when asked later, Dr. Rourke had no recollection of ever examining Ellen. According to the ME's report, Ellen had multiple stab wounds to the chest, abdomen, and back of the neck, and had a knife with a 12.5 centimeter blade sticking out of her chest at a depth of 10 centimeters. Ellen's parents would later say during an interview that their daughter was too squeamish to pierce her ears a second time, let alone stab herself. Ellen's parents began investigating this on their own in the years since her death. They've hired many experts and investigators to try to help to close the book on this case, a case they do not believe was a suicide. According to medical professionals, Cyril Wecht and Henry Lee, both working on high-profile cases like the JFK assassination and O.J. Simpson, both came to the same conclusion once reviewing all of the data available to them. Ellen's death appeared to be consistent with homicide. Wecht wrote in a 2012 report, Suicidal stab wounds can rarely be multiple. Stab wounds to the back are unlikely to be suicide. Lee's findings, which came later, reached the same conclusion. He said, The number and types of wounds and bloodstain patterns observed are consistent with the homicide scene. 
Tom Brennan, a retired state trooper of 24 years and a former detective, was retained by the Greenbergs to review the case. He took major issue with the investigator's insistence that because Ellen appeared to not have any defensive wounds, that this was not a homicide. Brennan was quick to point out that it's possible she was taken by surprise in what he described as a blitz attack, which could have left her totally defenseless. Following up on that, Brennan hired Wayne Ross, a forensic pathologist, to review a fragment of Ellen's spinal cord, which was still in the possession of the medical examiner's office. This was performed back in 2017, and Ross was able to conclude that her cranial cavity had been punctured, which would have rendered her unconscious and prevented her from stabbing herself so many times. You could plainly see the nerves were severed, Brennan would say. She would have most likely passed out or died. In contrast to Brennan, the Philadelphia Inquirer hired their own investigation team to review the evidence. Gregory McDonald, a Montgomery County coroner, reviewed the evidence. The conclusion he arrived at was that he was on the fence. He focused mainly on the stab wounds themselves. He noted that typically when we see a series of shallow stab wounds, they could be consistent with hesitation marks. When someone is self-inflicting these wounds, oftentimes they'll stab themselves superficially first to kind of see what it feels like to them, and then they'll go deeper and deeper as they progress with the self-inflicted wounds. He also stated that in homicides, a shallow stab wound is also uncommon. He also noted, though, that the deeper the wounds... The number of punctures and the gash on her forehead complicated the case. That could have been related to a knife attack. Finally, he said Ellen had been stabbed through her clothing. Most suicides are done by lifting up the clothing in that area, and then the victim proceeds to self-injure. A few other oddities in this case. Why did Ellen fill her car with gas prior to heading home? Is that indicative of someone that is suicidal? Also, the state's attorney general's office had some computer forensic evidence found on her computer searching for suicide methods quick suicide, and painless suicide. None of that was included in any of the original reports. Why not? So, Craig, what do you think happened after you hear all of the, you know, facts as we know them laid out before us in this particular case? Because it's a very strange one, and I've been reading about it for quite some time, and every time I come back to it, I'm just more and more perplexed. Yeah, I really, everything that we read over, I I still can't foresee this being a suicide. But yet, I don't know how it's a homicide when the door was locked from the inside and there were no, there was no evidence of anybody out on the balcony on the sixth floor because that was the only other way out of the apartment. Right. Um, I had seen a video somewhere and I didn't jot this down at the time and I apologize. Hopefully this is not incorrect, but um, let's just be clear. This is the speculation time on the show. So... If it's not 100% factual, I do apologize. But I believe at some point somebody had noted that during Ellen's autopsy, they noticed that she had a lot of bruising on her arms and maybe even on her legs in some spots. And to me, it almost seemed like abuse, like physical abuse marks. And I just, I have a lot of questions about this Sam Goldberg, and he doesn't really seem to be under any scrutiny for this at all, which I find very strange. Yeah, it is very strange. Do you think... Well, I I have two thoughts on how it could have possibly been him. And, I mean, he had the alibi of going to the gym, sure. The door being locked from the inside makes it very confusing. But do you think he figured out a way to lock that slide lock from the outside, even with the smallest of gaps? I, I don't even see how that's possible with that type of a lock. But is it possible he figured out a way to do that? So I had heard somewhere now this is pure speculation that the bolts that were used to fasten that uh, slide lock to the frame of the doorway the screws were not fully screwed in and he was able to break through it pretty easily and so the theory goes that he loosened the screws 
enough that he could probably lock that door himself from the outside and then was able to also break it down to get in. Okay. Now that's a little bit more believable. If if the the hardware that was used to fasten that slide lock to the door was loosened to the point where he could turn it just enough to reach the point where it would basically be engaged in the lock position, that that's a little bit more believable. It, and even you wouldn't be able to see that from the outside of the door if you're peeking in through the small gap that it was loose to begin with. Other than maybe if you were rattling the door, right? Well, and it's, a, and it's a great alibi. It's a great alibi. When you come back and you break the door open yourself, you know, it just looks like you broke the door mm-hmm. open. Screws came loose. Right. And it's going to do some damage when you break the door down that way. And maybe it, maybe it covers his tracks at that point. Exactly. Like, you bust through that door so hard, no one's even thinking twice about why the door and bolts are messed up. Because you bust it in. You couldn't get in, so you broke it down, and now the bolts are there, and you're ready to go. Very true. It definitely makes you think. But also, if there was a struggle, and he had killed her and then figured out a way to manipulate the door lock to get out and make it look like she had killed herself, didn't the neighbors report in the police report that there was no sign or no sounds of struggle or any kind of altercation in that apartment when it happened? You thought you would have thought there would have been some pretty loud noise going on if he was especially stabbing somebody 20 times until they're unconscious. Yeah, so I think that what could have happened, like they described, the one expert suggested it could have been a, a blitz attack, which if he got her in the spinal cord right away, you may not have heard anything. Like it may have paralyzed her right then and there. And any noise she was making was quiet enough to be muffled, you know, by the walls and all that stuff. And I don't know how these apartments are constructed exactly. Like, are the walls paper thin where you hear everybody all the time? Or are they fairly well insulated where you have to be pretty loud so you could get away with something like that? I mean, I don't know. True. And I, I, I guess with the, the one report showing that there had been a strike to the back of her neck that would have paralyzed her, that that's very possible. With the blitz attack, I mean, she wouldn't be. She would have been rendered almost unconscious and not able to to make any noise at that point. Plus, also, don't you think if it's a suicide and you start stabbing yourself, that you're going to yell or scream out at some point because it's going to hurt like hell and, and it's going to trigger that reaction to yell or scream. I would think. Yeah, I mean, I don't imagine going down that way. You know, suicide by twenty knife wounds. Like, I mean, I know anybody is capable of doing anything like that to themselves and you never know someone's state of mind when they're experiencing some type of uh, mental health issues and they're not feeling their normal self and then they're on medication that has suicide as a side effect but I have a really hard time just believing that this was a suicide I just do there's something about it that just does not sit right with me and if I were her parents I wouldn't be you know feeling good about this either and I haven't really come across, and I've looked, I haven't come across much about Sam and like how the police pursued him because it seemed like they really took his story and his alibis, checked out the cameras, and they were, okay, cool, you did it. Like You, were, you went to the gym and you came back. Like That was all that happened. But the whole apartment was extremely clean except for that one area where she had you know, been murdered or committed suicide. But I, I tend to lean towards... Something doesn't feel right about this to me. No, I I totally agree, and I'm 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 hedging my bets on the fact that he he did something to make himself able to lock that door and make it appear as if someone had locked themselves inside the room, or maybe somebody else was in there with her, and kind of that 
superficial appearance of, oh, I couldn't get in, I couldn't, and I couldn't have possibly have locked this lock because I went to the gym. She had to have done it from the inside. I, I, I'm going to stand by the fact that he figured out a way to lock that door, killed her, left the building. The camera's going to show that he left and his alibi stands as far as going to the gym. The only thing that really bothers me after talking through this whole thing is the police report started with suicide, they switched it to homicide, and then they went back to suicide. And I don't understand why, especially with the pressure from her parents. Yeah, that's the strange part of this whole equation is the police were kind of dictating what the rulings were on this report. They said it should be suicide. And the medical examiner was like, hmm, okay, sure. <laughs> like, what? How's that work? That should be the medical examiner's job to determine the cause of death, not the police. No, exactly. Uh, I've always thought that that's, the coroner has the final say on cause of death. I, I didn't think that the police investigating or the investigators on the case could come back and say, oh, no, this is homicide. Change it. I didn't think that that's how that worked. I mean, I'm not obviously in law enforcement. I'm not an attorney, but I always thought coroner had the final say. Yeah, and they do. And what else is interesting is she fills her car up with gas before heading home, before the blizzard. And, I mean, perhaps if it were suicide, you're not thinking you're going to kill yourself right that minute. Maybe that feeling strikes you. I could see that I don't personally suffer from mental health issues so I can't really speak to them 100% but I can see a scenario where it just hits you like a wave of depression just out of nowhere like you may be like in a rough mental state anyway but then like it just all of a sudden it's self-consuming like and then that's when she decided like she was going to stab herself like I could see that playing out that way but at the same time, I do have a hard, I have a hard time believing that she would go and do things like fill up her car with gas for the next day. And she seemed really tight with her parents. Like she wouldn't call or talk to her parents, like even, even without telling them what she's going to do, but just to kind of get that like one last goodbye, you know, for her own sake. I don't know her, but it just seems like something she would do. Right. And even if she had a place to call like that, you think it would have been a, a very emotional call and her parents could have picked up on you know, something's wrong here, but that wasn't the case. Right. And why was she suddenly wanting to come back home? You know, you're getting, you've been gone, you know, you've been out of the house for years. You're about to be married. You're planning a wedding and suddenly you want to return home. Was there something going on with her and Sam behind the scenes that nobody knew about? And it was just this dirty little secret and she wasn't really willing to tell anybody. And that's what was making her stressed out and depressed. And did that have to do with the potential bruises and things that were found on her body at the autopsy? Was that she was actually being physically abused by him? I mean, we don't know. This is pure speculation. And I'm not saying that that happened because I can't prove any of it. But it does sound like there's a lot more to the story to me for some reason. There's so many unanswered questions that makes me feel like this is more than what we're being led to believe. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up. I, I kind of glazed over the fact that she had been wanting to return home after all at what after three years I think that there was there there had to be some kind of either verbal or physical abuse going on for her to want to get out of that relationship but she might have not been coming out and being straight with her parents and telling them what's going on because she didn't want them to worry I mean there it, it was a little worrisome obviously that they had brought up the fact that she wanted to come home but she could have been sugarcoating it for you know protection of her parents not wanting them to constantly worry about her being away from home and and being physically or, or verbally abused. And with the 
with the conversation around mental illness, that's a very touchy subject for a lot of people. Um, I by no means want to, you know, pretend to be an expert. I'm not, but you know, I'm sure there are situations where you could be triggered instantly. Something could happen. He could have said, you know, the wedding's off. They could have had an altercation. You know, it might not have been loud, but they could have been having a very, you know, focused conversation. He could have grabbed her, shoved her around a little bit. Things led, one thing led to another. She said she's going home, already talked to her parents. He stabbed her and killed her. Maybe this is something he had been planning. And, you know, like like I've said several times, had a, he had figured out a way to, to stage the scene to look like she had killed herself. And then he had the alibi at the gym. That's what I'm going with. I, I really don't believe this was a suicide. I think stabbing yourself in the back, first of all, like who would do that? That seems very strange. Like if you were going to test it out, if you will, and stab yourself, like I'm stabbing myself in the leg or the butt, you know, like, or the hip. Like I'm not... I'm not going behind my head to my neck. Like, you, it just doesn't make sense. Like, who would do that? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I, I don't think that that's how it happened. I mean, we obviously aren't the investigators here, but it just, it's entirely too strange to be a suicide, in my opinion. I agree. And then suddenly, like, additional uh, digital forensic evidence shows up saying that she was searching for suicide and quick suicide and this and that. Like, where'd that come from? And how do you know it was her searching that? What if Sam searched that in advance on her machines? Like, you don't know that. It was very, like, backhandedly presented, just, you know, out of the blue, randomly. And it's like, well, where did this evidence come from? And how do we know that it was her who searched it? Right. Yeah, that piece of the the puzzle is too easy to stage. He could have very easily signed on her computer as her and did the and threw a couple quick Google searches out there for those topics and made it look like she was looking for it. That one was pretty easy to to uh, stage, in my opinion. Yeah, this the the thing I have an issue with in this case is that there are more questions than answers, and there's so many circumstances surrounding this that makes me uneasy in assuming it was a suicide, and especially in the way that she was stabbed. That's the big one. If she had one stab wound to her chest and she had died, or maybe just a couple to her chest, you know, a few test ones and then the good one, you know, that finally got her, I would then probably lean towards the side of the investigators here and not think much of it. But because there's all these stab wounds to the back of her, like, what, what is that? That's just strange. That That's the one that really, like, raises, you know, my spidey sense and gets me thinking, like, what's going on? And then you find out all these weird things going on with the investigation around it. And it seems very like open and closed and the police are dictating things. And it's just, it's very bizarre. Yeah. It it would be an interesting research topic to go out and try to find out how many people have ever committed suicide by stabbing themselves and stab themselves in the neck before actually plunging a knife into their chest and killing themselves. I have a feeling this is a one-off case in that respect. Yeah. I did come across something about like, suicide by stab wounds and the numbers were very very low it was like very few people do it right because and i'm not making light of uh, this case or anything around it but i mean everybody's cut themselves at some point whether it's with a knife or on glass or something and i just can't myself personally can imagine stabbing myself forcefully in the back of the neck ever for any any situation whether it's no, it's going to hurt like hell. Right. You, that's just something you don't think of doing. Even if you're looking to inflict pain on yourself, maybe you're going to cut yourself or, you know, swipe the skin and break it open. But to actually plunge a knife into the back of your neck, that just sounds horrifying to me. 
Right. I mean, I know there are people who are self-mutilators and, you know, I'm sure they don't take this stuff lightly, but, you know, I just can't imagine like doing it to your neck, you know, that just doesn't seem like a normal, like I could see you hiding it on your inner legs or your, you know, your arms somewhere or something like that. But then if you were going to ultimately decide to stab yourself to die, you would think you would just go straight, straight for the heart, you know, and just get it over with. Like almost like a gunshot wound to the head. Like you're just, you're going to stab yourself and you're just going for where you know you're going to be effective. Right. It, there, there's only two methods there that I can think of. You're either stabbing yourself directly in the chest or you're cutting your neck. Yeah. Or, I mean, you could you could cut the inside of your thigh. You have a huge artery there too, but you're really going to have to dig deep to get to that, to, to cut yourself to the point where you're going to bleed to death. Yeah. I mean, there's methods to get yourself to that point, but I mean, just generally speaking, like, I don't know, I would personally probably go for the most efficient stabbing method not the one that's like least efficient like this but i mean again i don't have a history of mental illness and i'm not a self-mutilator so maybe those people would disagree and there's a good reason why they do those things i just i can't think of what it would be yeah so basically at the end of all this i think we both agree that there's no way this could have been a suicide just by what we've discussed i i'm pretty sure i mean i don't want to say her boyfriend or fiance was the, the prime suspect. But in this, in this case, everything we've read, everything that we know, I have to believe that he's the prime suspect in the homicide. Yep. 150%. You know, he, he would be the one I'd be the most worried about. And again, I mean, it is possible, I guess that she did commit suicide and I'm not accusing him of murder, but at the same time, I have a really hard time believing that she did do that to herself and he's the only other one who was around. And there's not a lot of information I was able to come across with regards to him and what he was doing, you know, and because his alibi seemed at the time so airtight that I think police just let him go. You know, they didn't really spend a lot of time on him. Yeah, and ultimately that's kind of a sad narrative to to wrap up this case and this discussion is they kind of sounds like they just, oh, he was at the gym, she killed herself, case closed. It, Kind of sounds like they're being lazy on their part. I agree. All right. That brings us to a close this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case, provide any insights to maybe some of the mental health aspects that Craig and I may not have touched on or understood enough. Um, You can hit us up on our social media channels uh, that you heard at the top of the show and will be included in the show notes for this case. I'm glad that you guys were here with us. Until next time, stay safe. So I have a confession to make. Oh boy, that's a spicy entrance. (laughs) So do you recall, I don't remember, it was probably one of the cases we did around Porkchop Rob. I do remember that case. I was actually just thinking about it today because I was looking through some of our timelines and I saw somebody had did an episode on um, Joe Matheny, the the guy who was cooking up burgers at his uh, barbecue joint with uh, human meat in them.
And I started thinking about pork chop Rob. Yeah. Well, I uh, I need to maybe admit some some form of defeat here a little bit. I am going vegan for a week. Really? What brought that about? Uh, okay. So, if some of you haven't heard, uh, I think I went on a pretty epic rant about uh, veganism. <clears throat> A few, uh, one of the episodes we did around the pork chop rob ones, probably the one after that one, we had some feedback. I am not doing this for ethical reasons at all. I still don't care if people eat meat. And my rant is geared at veganism as a cult, not veganism as a lifestyle or healthy choice. So I just want to get that out of the way. But I don't, I did, um, a few months ago, I had done a blood test to, um, it's called like the blood type diet. And I did a blood test and it tells you based on your blood type, what types of foods are healthy for you. And for those that don't know, I'm like really into working out and exercise, health and fitness and that kind of stuff. So I, I just love this stuff. And, uh, and my wife's really into it as well. And she's the one who kind of got me turned on to this blood type diet kind of thing. And so I started looking at it and the results told me essentially like eat very little meat, eat soy. Soy is good for my blood type and some of these kinds of things and eat less fat. And at some point over the last year, I had experimented with the keto diet um, just for grins and because I love eating steak and bacon and all that fun stuff. So who wouldn't want to do that diet? That sounds great. Um, and I just didn't, it, like at first I felt pretty good, but then suddenly I wasn't feeling so good and... I think it was, my body just doesn't do that well with like high fat, especially animal fat, you know, saturated fats and stuff like that. So I kind of did a little bit of a reversal, went more of a like low fat situation and started doing like, you know, the traditional eighties low fat diet, except, uh, I would say what is more of a healthy take on that, which is basically eat vegetables and lean cuts of meat, not as much red meat just because it has so much fat. Um, but I wouldn't avoid it, but I would, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, long, long, long story to get here. Um, then I decided, well, I wonder what it would be like if I, I feel like I don't eat enough of vegetables just on their own and I'm getting really sick of the foods that I eat regularly. And so I decided, um, I would go vegan for a week to force myself to eat things that I don't normally eat to then probably go back to what I would call a flexitarian diet where I eat two thirds of my meals are more vegan or vegetarian. And then, you know, maybe one meat product or something like that. Cause I eat a lot throughout the day. So a lot of meat constantly. So I just kind of wanted to reverse that a little bit, I guess. So we had just discussed not that long ago about meeting up at George's in, in Canton to talk about the show and do some planning. Do they have the, uh, everything burger there or how is that going to, how's that going to happen? I don't know, dude. I didn't really think about it that far because it's only gonna be a week for now. That might be it. that might be my flexitarian meal that 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 day. <laughs> the, the big Ernesto and with a side of home cut fries is a, f- a flexitarian diet for an entire week. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's good to see. That's a good experiment. I mean, if if you're gonna prove that that blood test is, you know. I don't know if the word is authentic or, you know, how does it make you feel? You really don't know until you try it. So, I mean, that's great. Yeah. And so we're, we're halfway through day one right now and I feel pretty good. Let me say the fiber, the fiber is real, my friend. 
The fiber is real. The fiber keeps things real. <laughs>